You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 117, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Deeper Secrets of Human Evolution in the Light of the Gospels, Twelve Lectures, translated by Christiana Bryan. This is Lecture 7, given in Stuttgart on the 14th of November, 1909, entitled The Gospels. Today we will speak about some aspects of themes that have played a part in the development of our spiritual movement in Germany. You will know, and some of you took part in this, what was last said about the spiritual scientific truths and knowledge relating to the Gospels. We conveyed in various towns what could be said in connection with St. John's Gospel. We also shared some aspects of St. Luke's Gospel. Not all of you were able to participate in hearing this. What we will be speaking of today will not presuppose familiarity with what has gone before, but instead we will bring you some general perspectives from this spiritual scientific field that should prove valuable for you. Christianity, and all that appertains to it, made a deep incision in the whole evolution of humanity, as has often been mentioned here in Stuttgart. All that takes place around us and all that the human soul is able to experience today can scarcely be understood without taking into account the magnitude of the Christ event in earth history. This needs to be borne in mind. It is of boundless importance for each individual human soul that they realize the significance of this event. You are aware that this Christ event is portrayed for humanity in the form of four documents which we know as the four Gospels, and with which you are undoubtedly familiar, having read them in various forms. These four Gospels, those according to Matthew, to Mark, to Luke, and to John, have fared variously during human evolution since the founding of Christianity. Great changes have taken place in the human stance toward and appraisal of these four records. If we initially ask ourselves how these four documents appear to modern people, even to modern theologians, the answer lies nearby. Firstly, we can say, there are three texts of the Matthew, Mark, and Luke Gospels. They, at least, agree, according to common modern opinion, in some respects. But the fourth, that of St. John, is quite different from the other three. This Gospel of St. John has the effect on people of posing the following dilemma. If we take the first three Gospels as historical documents, as depictions of the life of Christ Jesus, the fourth contradicts these three so fundamentally that this fourth Gospel can surely not be appraised as a depiction reflecting historical fact. The resulting opinion is that this fourth manuscript is the declaration of a man faithful to the mission of Christ Jesus, a a kind of hymn springing from the heart of one ardently proclaiming his message. The other three Gospels are called canonical, 
in that they appear and are believed to offer a historical depiction of historical events. Staying for a moment with contradictions, which seek their explanation in external physically bound reasoning, one will actually find that the other three Gospels do also contain contradictions. Is it no contradiction that in Matthew's Gospel the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem is related, the flight to Egypt, too, the appearance of the Magi from the Orient, while in Luke's Gospel the journey to Bethlehem is reported, yet there is complete silence on St. Matthew's Magi, silence on the flight to Egypt, and so on. And this is not even to go into the three years of Christ Jesus' ministry, where discrepancy after discrepancy is to be found. We could pose the following question. How did contemporary views on the Gospels evolve over the course of Christian times? Has it always been the case that people have seen the Gospels in ways that focused primarily on these contradictory elements? We need to be clear how this evaluation of the Gospels evolved. It is only recently that people have had the Gospels so readily available, that they are so widespread among humanity, confined as they were within the hands of very few before the advent of the printing press. And even then they were not found among the illiterate masses, but sequestered among the most educated, the select few who had made them the focal point of their lives. It is certainly not the case that the further back in time one looks, the more people voiced their awareness of such contradictions. The opposite is the case. The further back one observes, the less it appears that any discrepancies were felt to be present, and that the four Gospels could be viewed alongside each other without any sense of disparity. The attitude toward the Gospels was quite different in the first centuries of Christianity. Were we to characterize this attitude, we would have to point to the immense reverence with which people were filled, the devotion they brought toward depictions in the Gospels during those early Christian centuries. Their entire mood was affected by their gaze being directed aloft to the majestic figure of Christ Jesus. How were the Gospels experienced? How did people feel about the stories they heard from Matthew and from Luke being so different? They felt rather like someone today might feel, I used this comparison in lectures held here and there lately, when photographing a tree from one angle. A photo such as this shows a single side of the tree. If one wanted to elicit in other people any real sense of what a tree is, this would be extremely one-sided. One could hope to engender a more comprehensive view of that tree by seeing four photographs of it, taken from four angles, four pictures of the selfsame tree. These would not correspond to any significant degree with each other. They would differ considerably. Nevertheless, nobody would be under the impression that these four photographs were not of a single tree. Each would say, by seeing four sides of this tree, I gain a fairly complete picture of it. This is something like the impression created by the Gospels in the early Christian centuries. People felt this whole mighty event is simply depicted from four perspectives, and we can gain an all-embracing view by gathering together these four pictures and creating our own composite picture 
the one thing we need to be clear about is how these four depictions relate to one another. This great event is indeed shown from four differing viewpoints. If one wishes to be quite clear about each viewpoint, the following has to be taken into account. Before us we behold the towering individuality of Christ Jesus, an individuality of whom we know from the descriptions previously given here, that he descended from spiritual worlds and appeared in Palestine at the beginning of our calculated era. The individuality who descended represents for each human being a great and all-encompassing ideal. Each person strives upward, as it were, toward those vast distances on high in which they divine unique perfection contained within one individuality, as expressed through Christ Jesus. And they strive toward this ideal. Initially, people see this striving in their own intellectual or moral terms, etc. But they perceive even more when they join what we know as this spiritual scientific movement. There they can follow evolution right into the spiritual world. They know that each person can grow beyond their habitual self, that they can grow toward vision into spiritual realms, that they can develop their senses so as to live within spiritual worlds. Such people recognize this. In the treatise titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Attained?, you encounter one aspect of this upward trajectory, this entry into spiritual realms. And there you will also find a description of what has been called, quote, the splitting or separation of the personality, close quote. When people develop spiritually and gradually grow toward and into the spiritual world, perhaps becoming visionary, then something akin to a separation of the elements of their personality does indeed take place. Three forces within a personality we know as thinking, feeling, and willing. In the normal person, these three are more or less integrated and work in concert. Thinking, feeling, and willing act together. You go out into a field and you see a flower. Put differently, you had an image of a flower and you thought, I like that flower. You call it beautiful. In other words, you had a feeling. A feeling joined a thought. You pick the flower and take it home. In other words, you wanted, you desired that flower. This is how human life generally proceeds. People imagine, think, feel, and act. And these three elements interact with each other. Imagination calls forth feelings. These cause willing, action or abstention from a deed, and so forth. If a person now self-develops into the spiritual world, to clairvoyance and to participation in that spiritual world, a separation in these forces takes place. In someone who has arrived at a certain stage of development, each thought no longer elicits a feeling, but that thought appears in isolation. Feelings can equally appear in isolation, willing likewise. And because the person has now, as it were, divided into three separate beings, whereas thinking, feeling, and willing were previously forces that merely coexisted within a whole, they have to be all the stronger in their personality. They not only need to balance out these three forces, but become master of each one.
master of willing, master of feeling, and master of thinking, master of all three forces. They have to be archon, or leader of a horde, in the form of these three beings, creating order and subordination, lest other primary forces of evil assume dominance, tearing the person asunder, thinking to one side, feeling in another direction, and willing in a third direction. That person is then sundered once more into three parts, but such that they can no longer ever be united again, can never find their way back to their rightful entity. This is why human beings need to strengthen themselves inwardly, becoming strong in ruling over and becoming master of the forces that have become of their thinking, their feeling, and their willing. When human beings develop themselves upward into spiritual realms, they split apart into three separate beings. When these beings approach us from above, from spiritual regions, and one sees them in their essential nature, something that can only be accomplished through seership, they appear sharply delineated and separate in the form of a thinking being, a feeling being, and a willing being. There they are, in the state to which that particular person has advanced them. This was so to an exceptional degree in the mightiest individuality to descend to us, the Christ being. This is why those who first described the Christ did so by saying Christ cannot be described just by taking a single viewpoint into account. He has to be pictured as if seeing a wisdom-filled thinking being, then as if seeing a being of will, and then as if describing a feeling being. One has to describe him from the standpoint of wisdom, of willing, and of feeling. This is how he should be described, said the people. They were well prepared for such views by the education that was traditional in those ancient days. If someone in those times was to be cultivated for spiritual knowledge, nowadays the first steps toward higher knowledge are necessarily different. If someone was mature enough to be guided in becoming, as it were, a citizen of higher worlds, it would then have been said, well, yes, this person is indeed ready to be led upward into higher worlds, but let us look at him in more detail. What should we nurture primarily in this person? Should it be wisdom, the power of thinking, or that of willing? In the ancient schooling centers, shrouded from general view, not all human forces were progressed in equal measure, but according to the karma of each pupil. In one pupil, clairvoyance would be cultivated by a thinking, in another, intuitive feeling would be advanced, while in a third, magical power would be nurtured through willing. This is the reason why in the ancient mystery schools three classes of advancing powers were developed in pupils. In some, the capacity to see into the spiritual world, illumined and filled with wisdom, was nurtured. These were the people to whom one went when needing to know how facts in the spiritual world were contextually related. In trivial parlance, these were the knowledge specialists, the knowledge experts within the mysteries. There was another class of acolyte in whom feelings were cultivated above all else. 
in order that feeling could evolve in predominance. Attention was given neither to nurturing, thinking, nor to willing, but feelings alone were the focus of their training. This being so, such an acolyte would become something barely acknowledged nowadays. They became healers and doctors. For doctors in ancient times exercised a far more spiritual influence on receptive souls, who were healed by forces originating in a sphere of feeling more highly evolved than is the case today. These formed the second class of initiates. They refined their feelings to a point of such dedication, of such devotion and self-sacrifice, even to the extremity of surrendering all their own forces. Work here was divided among specialists. If one wanted to know what was lacking in someone, one would go to those whose wisdom was most highly evolved. They would ascertain what this lack might be and how it was to be remedied. Then there were those who could not determine what a patient lacked, because thinking was not their specialized faculty. Instead, they would come and offer their forces, because they had refined the power of their feeling. These were the same people who had other functions, such as caring for those in accidents or mishaps with their highly evolved powers of sacrifice. A third category of initiate comprised the mages, those magicians who had trained their powers of will and who had to fulfill the most exacting conditions. These magi had cultivated their powers of will and would carry out whatever was required of them. So there were three categories of initiate, those of thinking, those initiated into feeling, and others initiated into willing. A fourth class or category of initiate consisted of those in whom the attempt was made to develop components of the other three qualities, elements of thinking, elements of feeling, and elements of willing. For this reason, they did not advance to as high a level as the other more specialized initiates, but they were nevertheless initiated such that forces of all three spheres, as it were, overlapped within them. So there were mighty initiates of wisdom, great initiates of sacrificial service, powerful magus initiates, and a fourth grouping of those possessing some measure of the other three capacities. The being of Christ Jesus was to be described from all aspects, from all perspectives, and we will go into this in more detail another time. Today we can only sketch it out in large brush strokes. When there appeared four people, each of whom possessed one of the four characteristics naturally combined in Christ, and who were able to depict him from their particular angle. One of them was specially initiated into the mystery of thinking, who could describe in Christ Jesus those faculties he was best qualified to understand, being an initiate of wisdom. He excluded aspects other than this. Another of these four was an initiate into feeling, and he it was who depicted Christ Jesus in terms of feeling, as it were, from the perspective of a doctor, of a healer. A third was initiated into will as a magus, and he describes the forces Christ could unfold for the ordering of humanity as a whole. A fourth individual was initiated into what we have called a fourth category, in whom the forces of the other three initiates interacted and wove harmoniously. In the main, he described the humanitarian work undertaken by Christ Jesus. 
He did not encompass all the power of wisdom, nor that of sacrificial service. Neither did he attempt to speak of the magical force of will to be found in Christ Jesus. Yet he saw how harmoniously the three forces of thinking, feeling, and willing were united within Christ Jesus, and described him in terms of Christ, the human being. This is how we have descriptions of Christ Jesus from the pens of four initiates. The initiate who describes Christ Jesus from the point of view of an initiate of wisdom was the writer of St. John's Gospel. The one describing him in his capacity as an initiate of feeling was the writer of St. Luke's Gospel. And the individual describing him in terms of his magic will forces wrote St. Mark's Gospel. The initiate who describes the harmonious interweaving of the three lower elements constituting the human being wrote St. Matthew's Gospel. In this way, each writer describes the particular aspect of Christ Jesus into which they have been initiated. In like manner, we can encompass a more fully rounded picture of Christ Jesus in that each Gospel writer speaks out of qualities closest to their own. Anyone filled with a requisite awe in face of such a mighty individuality as Christ will say, I am enabled to gain a more comprehensive picture of Christ Jesus precisely because each gospel writer gives of their best capacities. For this reason, it is essential that you do not keep taking what is said here on the basis of spiritual science in relation to the four gospels, be it the fourth, the third, the second, or the first, as if each chapter contained the sum total of truths about Christ Jesus. The notion could easily take hold, with regard to lectures given here or there, that Christ Jesus has been described. And would it not be amazingly fascinating to see how he is connected with a different gospel? No, it is not like that. In receiving depictions of Christ Jesus through a gospel, one receives it from one aspect alone. You will have to await such time in the course of our spiritual movement as Christ Jesus is eventually described in the context of all four Gospels. Only then will you have heard the combined mysteries about which we can speak. Now it behooves us to proceed from an albeit rather one-dimensional account in order to create more of a composite picture of Christ Jesus in such a way that really requires of you that you bear in mind what has just been said. You cannot leave today's lecture and say, Well, now we have got to the truth of these matters. No, you should say to yourself, We have been hearing about just one aspect, and further elaboration is needed to shed light on what can be said from other perspectives. The figure of Christ Jesus does indeed represent a confluence of all earlier spiritual streams in humanity, and simultaneously we see a rebirth of those streams. All previous streams flow together in Christ Jesus and are reborn, reborn in heightened stature. We could refer to any number of spiritual streams existing in pre-Christian times and with which we are faced when observing the four Gospels from a spiritual scientific perspective. However, we only wish to draw attention to three of these streams. Firstly, we have a powerful stream that has been active since ancient times in Asia. This is the stream of Zarathustrianism, 
A second stream once blossomed in India and reached a certain zenith in the appearance of Gautama Buddha, some six hundred years before our era. A third spiritual stream came to expression in the ancient Hebrew people. Thus in Christ Jesus we see a confluence of the ancient Hebrew spirituality with that in which Gautama Buddha lived his life and the stream synonymous with Zarathustra. We could mention many other spiritual streams, but the matter in hand would become too wide-ranging. Everything that took place in Palestine at the beginning of our era now emerges, if we are to understand it rightly, in the four Gospels. It is not the task of spiritual science to dredge from the Gospels what they intend to say. Nothing said by me has been trawled on the basis of the Gospels. The only source for the spiritual researcher is what is called the Akashic Chronicle or Record, and this can be clairvoyantly observed. Were all the Gospels to be lost through some catastrophe, what spiritual science has to say about Christ Jesus would nevertheless remain, because it rests firmly upon spiritual research. Only subsequently can what spiritual research yield be compared with what is written in the Gospels. It is this which elicits such objective reverence and awe toward all that we encounter in the Gospels. You must never allow this perspective to slip your attention, for nothing is being drawn from the Gospels, and for this reason neither does what I am about to relate originate from that source. Later we can compare what I am about to say with what is written in the Gospels, and we will find both to be entirely congruent. One of those spiritual streams which flowed into Christianity is that which reached its zenith in the personality of Gautama Buddha, who was incarnated in India some six hundred years before the time of our reckoning. What manner of individuality is this? We will understand this personality if we bear the following in mind. Everything that gradually emerges in the history of humanity is a product of evolution that has, little by little, as it were, settled. You would go astray if you imagined that modern humanity's faculties have always been as they are today. For instance, today we are familiar with what we call the voice of conscience. This has not always existed. We can practically seize upon the very moment when conscience arose in the course of human history. If you go back to Aeschylus, you will find in his writings no trace of a description of conscience. Only when you reach Euripides is conscience described. Between the times of these two Greeks, the concept of conscience emerges. What the modern person calls an inner voice has only relatively recently developed. Before the advent of conscience, we can say that human consciousness could be characterized as a sort of clairvoyance. If a person did something they should not have done, something akin to a spirit of revenge would appear to follow them. The Greeks called these the Furies. A person would really see the fruits of their evil deeds in the avenging Furies all around them. This manifestation external to the person was gradually internalized in the human soul as the voice of conscience. This is how other human faculties evolve over time, and it is just human myopia not to see farther than their noses 
much as external science does so copiously, if one believes that human beings have always been just as they are today. People were, therefore, unfamiliar with the teaching of compassion and love. We must imagine that teachings of compassion and love in those distant times were transmitted quite differently from today's methods. Nowadays, people are able to immerse themselves inwardly. When something or other happens in the outside world, people can generate a feeling of compassion and love, and they know this to be good. They can locate the principles of compassion and love within themselves. In ages gone, this was not possible. In olden times, those charged with caring for humanity would, purely through suggestion, instruct people how they should behave. Humanity had to be guided. There were isolated leaders of humanity who directed them in their conduct. These leaders and forerunners of humanity would evoke in human beings such deeds of charity and love as were to be carried out. These guiding leaders in the field of compassion and love in turn stood under the leadership of higher beings who, together with all those below them, acted under the influence of one called the Bodhisattva of love and compassion himself. His mission was to bring to earth the teachings of love, compassion and mercy. But this Bodhisattva, compassion and love guide of humanity though he was, was not a normally incarnated soul, but rather one whose incarnation did not extend completely into his physical body, and thereby retaining something of a bridge to the spiritual world. The Bodhisattva of compassion and love lived only partially as a physical human being, while part of his being extended into spiritual realms, from whence he brought to earth those influences and impulses which had been instilled in him for transmission to humanity. If we wished to depict this in spiritual terms, we would say, the seer sees a representation of a human form in which the Bodhisattva is partially incarnated, and behind this a mighty spiritual astral figure extending upward into spiritual realms, with only a portion tethered in a physical body. This is how the Bodhisattva appears. This Bodhisattva is the self-same individuality who is later reincarnated in India as the king's son, Gautama Buddha. This incarnation represents an upward step for this Bodhisattva, an enhanced and heightened state of virtue. He had earlier allowed himself to be guided from above, receiving inspiration and passing this onward. However, in the incarnation, falling 600 or so years BCE, he was elevated to Buddhahood at the age of 29, signifying that in this incarnation he experienced full immersion in his physical body. Whereas as a bodhisattva he was formerly obliged to remain partly outside his physical body, so as to create the spiritual bridge mentioned, his progress to Buddha existence entailed being able to incarnate fully into his body. By this means, he was able not only to receive the teaching of love and compassion through inspiration, but could now look within himself and receive these principles as the voice of his own heart. 
This was Buddha's enlightenment under the Bodhi tree at the age of 29. This was the moment when the doctrine of love and compassion arose within him, independently of his co-dependence on the spiritual world, in the form of human soul riches, so that he was now able to think what he had previously expounded in the Eightfold Path. His sermon on this, the mighty teaching of love and compassion, is the first to emerge from a human heart. This is what must happen with all human capacities. An individuality must appear for the first time in human evolution who brings to expression and in whom is manifest a new capability. Only then can this new capacity gradually start to develop among wider populations who in turn make it their own. The teaching of love and compassion could only be experienced as something inherent and accessible in each individual once it had been introduced by an individuality, and this is known as, quote, turning the wheel, close quote, in Oriental philosophy, that is the wheel of dharma, of compassion and love. This took place through the all-embracing individuality of the Bodhisattva descending into the king's son, Gautama Buddha. From then onward, it became possible for individuals of themselves to discover the doctrine of love and compassion. This is how it progresses. More and more people will uncover within themselves the teaching of compassion and love, and some 3,000 years into our era, there will be a sufficient number of people on earth who will be able to evolve in their own hearts what Buddha initiated. In this respect, Buddha's earthly mission will have been fulfilled. For when the Bodhisattva descended to become a Buddha, another being took over the virtue of the Bodhisattva. Until that point, the being we today call Buddha was a Bodhisattva. The stage following Bodhisattva is Buddha. From being a Bodhisattva, the ascending being becomes a Buddha. Oriental philosophy expresses this as follows. When the Bodhisattva descended to earth, he gave the Bodhisattva crown to the being who followed him. This subsequent being still lives nowadays as a Bodhisattva and will only rise to full Buddha, righteousness, in some three thousand years hence. It is the individuality known to Oriental philosophy as the Maitreya Buddha. Today he is a Bodhisattva and he will become Maitreya Buddha in some three thousand years' time. He has a mission which, unlike Gautama Buddha's, is connected with faculties not yet to be independently found within human beings. This is a progressive trajectory, such that we can say, the Bodhisattva who embodies the teaching of compassion and love has indeed progressed to full Buddhahood, and through this he gave his mission colossal impetus. Through the fact that having immersed his entire being into a human body six hundred years before our era, he merited the right no longer to be incarnated in a physical body on earth. And indeed this was the last time that a bodhisattva descended to incarnation. He no longer needed to incarnate in a physical body, but thenceforth only to descend to an ether body. All following incarnations of the Buddha are not such that he is visible on the physical plane, but can only be seen through the forces 
that allow human beings to see on an etheric level. And so, in all subsequent incarnations, Buddha only descended as far as an ether body. All that the Buddha wished to bring to humankind, he now caused to flow into events heralding the advent of Christianity on earth, 600 years after his last presence on earth. He brought his sacrificial offering toward Christianity, newly establishing itself as a parallel spiritual stream and allowed this offering to flow into the great combined streams of spirituality. This stream finds its zenith in the Buddha, that is one stream. Another stream came into existence in the following way. We can picture this if we look into human evolution as a whole. You will remember that after the catastrophic flooding of Atlantis, human beings did not possess the same faculties as they do today. In post-Diluvian times, they retained the remnants of a dimming clairvoyance. Logical thinking only emerged gradually. The culture we know as that of ancient India was emerging from a state of etheric clairvoyance. Zarathustrian culture was in a similar state, as were those of Chaldea and Egypt, in all of which thinking was not as it is today. Everything was inspired, received more or less through inspired imagination, and not suffused with logic. This also applied to Chaldean astrology and hermetic wisdom, which then saw the light of day. Human thinking along logical lines had not yet surfaced in these cultures and was reserved for quite different streams, later to be characterized as logical, thought-based cultures. The first post-Atlantean culture emerged entirely on foundations of etheric clairvoyance. The Zarathustrian culture following this was similarly clairvoyant, but to a less marked degree while Egypto-Chaldean culture was likewise based upon inspiration. Thinking in those times was not yet pervaded with logic. It was still permeated throughout with imaginations that came to expression in the wondrous images in the astrology of the Chaldeans and in the hermetic wisdom of the Egyptians. Post-Atlantean cultures proceeded from two sources. Apart from the stream flowing westward, which populates modern America, two streams of migrating peoples under the guidance of their leaders wandered to the east, one flow heading northward, the other in a southerly direction. The northern migration, which left elements behind in Europe, pressed onward into Asia. While new cultures were being established, the European population lived for centuries as if in waiting. Their strengths were being deferred for all that was to come later. The main traits of their culture were molded in the main by the great initiate known as Scythianos, who had chosen the expanses extending to the Siberian wastes as his particular area. The leaders of the primal European cultures were inspired by him and their abilities were based not upon the thinking later to enter humanity, but rather upon a receptivity to sounds midway between rhythmic, recitative language and a kind of singing, 
accompanied by highly distinctive music, no longer heard today and consisting of consorting flute-like instruments. This was a most extraordinary feature, the remnants of which resounded among the bards and skalds. All that is told in the Greek myths of Apollo and Orpheus has its origin in this culture. Alongside this, the practical skills of settlement and building and so on were being practiced in Europe. The other mass migrations, led by the great sun initiate, moved onward into Asia. The farthermost of these created the first post-Atlantean culture under the leadership of the Rishis. In the Middle East, the oldest Zarathustrian culture evolved, and here we are not speaking about the historical Zarathustra. What he elicited in some ways contrasts with ancient Indian culture, which was entirely built on etheric clairvoyance. Zarathustra turned his gaze toward the sun. He beheld the spirit of the sun, the great aura that was Ahura Mazda. It was Zarathustra who first brought the unique characteristics of northern culture to expression here. Everything that followed was to build upon this feature. The other branch of migration to have traversed across the southern branch created the foundations of Egypto-Chaldean culture, a growing blend that arose between the two cultures. This can be schematically illustrated. Indian culture represents the elaboration of the human ether body. That of Persia saw the evolution of the sentient body. Egypto-Chaldean culture gave rise to the sentient soul, being an inward-looking culture, a culture on an interior evolutionary path. Just as sentient body and sentient soul amalgamate, as they do in all humanity, this process is especially represented in the cultures of Egypt and Chaldea. The same will also come to pass as regards the consciousness soul and spirit self. This can only take place through what will have occurred in terms of transition in that area where spirituality has hitherto been held back, held in abeyance. This can only happen in Europe. This is the region where the development toward the intellectual and consciousness souls had been postponed or deferred, and where it could only progress after the Christ event. Here, too, will the future melding with qualities of spirit self be able to take place, and can only come to pass in a spiritual stream such as spiritual science. This will herald the sixth cultural epoch. While the two streams already mentioned existed under conditions of dim ancient clairvoyance, the third stream, which later combined with the first two, and which prepared for the advent of the Christ event, was joined by a fourth cultural current, which can, in turn, be characterized as one of logic and thought, of logical thinking. So that we understand each other quite clearly, please bear in mind that all clairvoyance arises from an ether body working to a certain extent independently, and in particular the etheric surrounding of the brain. Where an ether body is tightly conjoined with a brain, the physical tool of logical thinking, clairvoyance cannot emerge. 
only when an ether body is slightly detached, retaining an independent element, can seership ensue. If an ether body is comprehensively enmeshed with the physical brain, the person concerned will elaborate their brain in fine detail, and their physical brain will be similarly elaborated, leaving no surplus forces to cultivate clairvoyance. Yet it was essential that precisely this facility for brain-bound thinking, that very ability to synthesize world phenomena through brain activity, held its course in human progress. Something now had to be added to this human faculty, something essential to onward evolution, something of a selection process that can be characterized as follows. Let us take an individual in whom old clairvoyance was least present, but in whom the physical instrument of the brain was most incised, was most, as it were, chiseled out. This individual was capable of synthesizing the outer world in terms of measure, number, order, and harmony, while seeking unity among the phenomena laid out before them. Where adherents of earlier cultures derived their knowledge of the spiritual world from inside outward, as it were, this individual had to extend his gaze to the very periphery of world phenomena, had to unite these phenomena and weigh them up, reflecting, out there are the phenomena of the external world and everything is harmoniously ordered when observed as a single image of unity. What appears as a united external reality, external unity, once appeared as the Godhead behind such appearances of the physical world. This was a departure from other views of the divine. These latter devotees of the divine expressed it thus, Our image of the divine wells up from within. This individual, however, turned his gaze in every direction, evaluating and deciphering the phenomena looking at the various kingdoms of nature, trying to unify them. In short, he was the great designator of world marvels in terms of number and measure, was selected as such from the entirety of humankind. This individual chosen to survey the entire external physical world and to find unity within its calculable diversity was Abraham. Abraham, or Abram, was the individual selected by divine spiritual powers to receive a unique mission to deliver humanity into the world of physical phenomena, to those forces bound up with measure and number. His background was Chaldean culture, a culture which had derived its astrology from clairvoyance. Abraham, primal father of arithmetic, proceeded to seek out everything calculable, to synthesize everything on the basis of calculation, finding in the process that the physical brain had undergone an exceptional degree of etching or incising. A unique mission was allocated to him in this way. Now we need to consider how this mission was to unfold, because it was not his alone, but was to become a common asset for all humankind. As thinking was bound to the individual brain, how could it become a talent common to all? It could only really become an attribute of all humanity through physical heredity. 
This means that an entire people had to stem from this one individual. It follows that this people had to inherit a singular feature for as long as it was this feature's mission to be dispersed among humanity. An entire people needed to go forth from its origins. A people had to be established, not just a culture, in which teachings could be perpetuated. What was once received through clairvoyance could now be taught. What humanity was now to receive would be transferred to descendants through heredity, so that it could be integrated in every detail. What was to be integrated? That system of orderliness first introduced by Abraham was to be integrated by means of human permutation and combination. By looking upward to the celestial ordering of the stars, human orderliness through combination can be deduced. The wise men of Chaldea reflected the thoughts of the gods in their astrology. Now it was a matter of discovering this unique transition to combining to a logical perception of phenomena found in the external world. A physical attribute had to be inherited, derived from the physical work of thinking itself, that itself yielded an order mirroring the order dispersed in the surrounding world. This is beautifully expressed by the one who gave Abraham his mission, quote, Your descendants shall be as the number of stars, close quote, which the Bible nonsensically translates as, quote, Your descendants shall be as the sands of the sea, close quote. What is meant is that the descendants of Abraham shall be disposed in a definite way, structured so as to reflect an after-image of the starry heavens. This is also expressed in relation to the twelve sons of Jacob, who reflect an imprint of the twelve constellations of the zodiac. Here we see the number processes that are prefigured in the heavens. The sequence of the generations was to reflect this celestial enumeration. Just as starry ciphers are emblazoned across the heavens, so are these to be inscribed as numbers ordering the sequence of generations. Such is the profound wisdom contained in the foolishly translated words, quote, Your descendants shall be as the sands of the sea. Close quote. So we gain a sense of Abraham's mission. Other manifestations, too, symbolize this whole mission of Abraham in a wondrous way as reflecting all the mysteries of the world. Let us first reflect. It is the ancient twilight clairvoyance that is to be sacrificed here. Everything established over millennia in humanity was to be sacrificed. The innermost ethos of this entire mission was that everything was to be received as a bequest, as a gift from the external world. Whatever was to arise was to take its course through physical succession. It was in this form that the mission was to make its entrance into world history. Abraham himself had to receive his task as a gift from God. He was initially challenged to sacrifice his son Isaac, but was then prevented from carrying it out. What did he actually receive from the hand of God? He was given his task. Had he actually sacrificed Isaac, he would have been sacrificing his entire mission. In having Isaac returned to him, all his people are also 
returned to him. What he was intended to bequeath to the world, he then receives as a gift from a divine world order in the form of his son Isaac. Hence, everything that ensued and was dependent on Abraham is itself a gift from God. The last remnants of clairvoyance, and you will soon see what the individual gifts of clairvoyance express, each of which can be connected with one of the zodiac constellations, the last remains of this clairvoyance, voluntarily sacrificed, is associated with the constellation of Aries, the ram. This is why we encounter a ram at the sacrifice of Isaac, a symbol expressing the renunciation of the last gifts of seership in exchange for the new gifts of being able to appraise world phenomena in terms of number and measure. This task was assigned to Abraham. How does this task proceed? The last remains of clairvoyance are forfeited, ejected from his mission, and where they still emerged through heredity, not tolerated within Abraham's direct line of descent. Joseph was one such regression. He had dreams and clairvoyant abilities. His brothers cast him out. This shows just how strictly Abraham's mission was enacted. Joseph is banished, rejected. He wanders to Egypt to make those very connections with another branch of our common cultural evolution, namely with Egyptian culture. Joseph unifies within himself the universal characteristics inherent in this task with the remains of ancient clairvoyance. In Egypt he caused a complete revolution by importing clairvoyance into a declining Egyptian culture, thereby correcting its course. This is the basis for Joseph's own cultural mission. Now we witness a unique drama. We see how the missionaries of external thinking, thinking in terms of measure and number, are not on their earlier trajectory. They now seek outer connections, as did Joseph, because the afterglow of what they could no longer elicit from within could still be found in Egypt. The descendants of Abraham journey to Egypt and absorb there what they need. It can approach them from that quarter. That is why they travel to Egypt. What is needed for the furtherance of this mission because it is no longer accessible from within, is endowed externally through Egyptian initiation. Moses is able to convey this to them from the periphery, thus uniting Egyptian culture with Abraham's mission. We then see how this human knowledge, this conception of the outer world in terms of number, weight and measure, is propagated from generation to generation through blood kinship and can only be passed on in this way because it is bound to all that must be inherited. This then is the second stream. The third stream is that connected with Zarathustra and which came to expression in ancient Persia and spread into the Near and Middle East as we have learned in several lectures. These are the three streams that flow together in Christ Jesus the individuality who was to be allied with all three of these streams. They had to unite within him. How was this to take place? It took place in the following complex way. 
let us first remind ourselves that one of the streams to flow into this worldwide confluence had played its main part in India some six hundred years before that event. At around the same time, an event was taking place in ancient Babylonian Chaldean culture in the form of Zarathustra reappearing under the name of Zaratos or Nazarathos. He lived and taught in Chaldea at the very time when the greatest and most highly acclaimed teachers and leaders of the ancient Jewish Hebrew people had been led into Babylonian captivity. So you see that this is the first time contact was established between the Hebrew people and Zeratos, and how members of that people lived under the direct personal influence of the reincarnated Zarathustra, or Zoroaster. Here we see the events described in the Bible being played out. Here we also encounter the following. At the start of our calendar reckoning, there were two sets of parents, both called Mary and Joseph. The one couple lived in Nazareth, the other in Bethlehem. The husband in one of the married couples was descended from the Solomon line in the house of David, and he was the husband in the Bethlehem couple. The other couple in Nazareth were descended from the Nathan line of the house of David. Solomon and Nathan are both sons of David. Both these couples gave birth to a son. To the Nazarene couple a Jesus child is born, as described by St. Luke. And to the Bethlehem couple a Bethlehem Jesus child is born, as described in St. Matthew's Gospel. Thus we have two Jesus children at the start of our calendar era. Let us follow the Jesus child from Bethlehem. How did he come into being as a physical child? We see his lineage as a physical child, which is described as far as Abraham by the writer of Matthew's Gospel. We need to imagine a trail from Ur in Chaldea over to the land of Canaan, thence to Egypt, and back again to Canaan. This would approximately replicate the path taken by the Israelites from Chaldea to Palestine, onward to Egypt, and returning to Palestine. These were the ancestors of the Bethlehem Jesus child. In that he shared the blood of these ancestors, he, as it were, co-experienced this flight into other lands. The individuality who now wanted to incarnate in the Bethlehem Jesus child made this journey albeit swiftly and in compressed form. And this was the individuality who had taught as Zarathustra in ancient Chaldea. Thus at the moment when the Bethlehem Jesus child was born, a spiritual individuality retraced the same journey as Abraham himself had made from Chaldea to Canaan, only now on a spiritual level. And this individuality was then incarnated in the Bethlehem Jesus child. Shortly after this, the flight to Egypt was indeed re-enacted, as also the return from Egypt to Nazareth, where the family of this being could settle. And here we see the individuality, who so to speak repeated in spiritual form all the travels of the Israelites. You can retrace all these journeys yourself in the Bible, where you will find that all the descriptions do indeed tally with this. The Bible is the best descriptive document among all records. What can be seen by the seer in the Akashic Chronicle 
is covered in the Bible. The Israelites' journey from Chaldea to Canaan, onward to Egypt and back to Palestine. Wonderful indeed are the parallels in all this. Who leads the Jews to Egypt? The dreams of one Joseph inspire this. Who inspires the flight of the Bethlehem Jesus child to Egypt? The dreams of another Joseph, his father. The parallels align to this level of detail. It is indeed an exceptional gift of persisting clairvoyance that creates such correlations. So, born into this Bethlehem Jesus child, having received the element that entered humanity through heredity via Abraham, was the individuality of Zarathustra. Those who were connected with Zarathustra in the mystery schools of Chaldea now follow the trail. In the spiritual world their star leads them. Zoroaster himself who moves toward Bethlehem in order to be born. The three magi can follow him. They too appear in the Bible. They know the individuality living in the Jesus child in Bethlehem. This is the one Jesus child, the child of Bethlehem. In the other Jesus child, who was only born in Bethlehem as a result of a journey, there lived a different being whose advent was announced in all his qualities as being quite different from the Bethlehem child. The Bethlehem Jesus child is described from birth onward as being exceptionally gifted beyond all human measure, and this is because in him lived a mighty individuality. He was gifted in all that humanity had hitherto conquered culturally. He was exceptionally able to encompass all that could be learned from his surroundings. The other child, the Nazarene Jesus child, was not in the least gifted in the externals of culture. He had only a deeply, deeply soulful inwardness. Precisely this characteristic of inner, soul-filled quietude was an especial gift in him. He was, however, not talented in taking in his surrounding culture and had little inclination to do so. He did possess a faculty for distinguishing between good and evil, an ability of which people cannot gain the slightest idea. All earthly culture was foreign to him. It was all foreign to him, because in him was born an element which the entire span of human evolution had not undergone. We will understand this if we consider the following. In ancient Lemurian times, what we call the Luciferic influence came to be within humanity. These Luciferic forces slid into human astral bodies and humanity thus became what it did become. The principal powers then had to withhold a portion of the human ether body to prevent this part becoming infected with the luciferic content of the astral body. A part of the ether body was preserved, separated from the influence of the astral body. Due to the fact that human beings held sway only over those parts of their ether body to do with being a feeling and a willing entity, but not over the part concerned with thinking activity. This thinking element was held back and was guided from above by the divine spiritual world. This is why human beings, from the very beginnings of their earthly evolution, 
Each have their individual desires and their personal feelings. But they could not have their personal thoughts, nor that expression of personal thought, speech. Thinking was such that through an all-pervading spirituality, it was guided and led equally in all humans. Hence every person thought the same. Speech was also guided for most by folk gods, such that not every person had their own language. That element expressed by the spirit of speech was, in relation to ether bodies, removed from the arbitrary control of individual personalities and was held in reserve. What was held back in Lemurian times is recounted in the myths about paradise. Human beings ate from the tree of knowledge, but not from the tree of life. They gained power over their own will. But what humanity had not been given was now by mysterious processes transferred to this Jesus boy, to the Nazarene Jesus child, whose ether body this was. It was this that had been removed, detached from humanity at its inception, and this prevented the Nazarene Jesus child from taking an interest in a culture wrought by humankind. In him was contained something far more originally pristine and primal, reminiscent of the time when humanity had not yet fallen into the sin of individual impiety, of decadence. The writer of St. Luke's Gospel expresses this by enumerating the entire family tree back to Adam, thereby showing that in the Nazarene Jesus child an element is manifest that had sunk into Adam, but that was withdrawn and preserved from all Luciferic influence. Humanity, in the state it had existed before any Luciferic influence, this was now contained within the Jesus child of Nazareth. These two Jesus boys lived next to each other. When they were both twelve years old, the following occurred. Zarathustra, residing in the Bethlehem Jesus boy, took the decision to transfer his individuality to the Jesus boy from Nazareth. This is hinted at in the Bible in an event referred to as the loss of the twelve-year-old and his parents' amazement at finding him again. The Nazarene Jesus boy is quite changed from his former character. Suddenly he is interested in his surroundings and culture, a characteristic attributable to the individuality of Zarathustra dwelling in him. This is the moment described in the Bible as the twelve-year-old Jesus being lost. Something else was also taking place. At the birth of the Jesus child of Nazareth, what we can call the later incarnation of Buddha sank down, descending into his astral body. In his reincarnation, Buddha's ether body was now bound from birth onward with a Nazarene Jesus boy, such that we see Buddha in the astral body within the aura of Jesus of Nazareth. This is profoundly intimated in Luke's Gospel. Indian legend tells us that there was a remarkable wise man who was to become a Buddha at the time when the king's son Gautama Buddha was born. Asita, it was, who had lived then. He had perceived clairvoyantly that the Bodhisattva had now been born. 
He saw the child in the king's palace and was filled with enthusiasm. He began to weep. Why are you weeping? asked the king. Oh, king, nothing unfortunate lies ahead. On the contrary, the boy who has been born is the Bodhisattva and he will become Buddha. I weep only because I am an old man who will not live to see him as Buddha. And with that a Sita dies. The Bodhisattva does become Buddha. Buddha descends and unites himself with the aura of the Nazarene Jesus child, contributing his humble might to the great event in Palestine. Simultaneously, through karmic nexus, the once Asita is reborn. He becomes old Simeon, who sees the Buddha, who has now evolved from a bodhisattva. What he could not see in India six hundred years earlier, the unfolding Buddhahood of the Bodhisattva, he now sees in the aura of the Nazarene Jesus child he was cradling, while to Buddha, hovering aloft, he says those wonderful words, quote, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, Close quote. the Buddha in the aura of the Jesus child. So we see how these three streams flow together through blood lineage down from Abraham, the Zarathustra line through the individuality of the Bethlehem Jesus child, and the third stream through the fact that the Buddha, in his ether body or Nirmanakaya, drifts downward and is seen by the shepherds. In this way we see the three streams converging. How these three live onward within Christianity how the stream of the Nazarene Jesus child, who is endowed with the individuality of Zarathustra, lives onward, can only be presented another time. It remains to be said that after the Zarathustra individuality had moved over into the personality inhabiting the body of the Nazareth Jesus boy, the Bethlehem Jesus boy gradually wasted away and soon died. The important thing for you to understand is the process by which the Zarathustra individuality was led over into the boy, Jesus. You know that human development proceeds such that from birth to age seven the physical body is maturing. Between seven and fourteen the ether body is being elaborated and unfolding, and that the astral body is then born. A unique I or ego entity born to humans in Lemurian times, was not present in the Nazarene Jesus boy. Had he developed further without Zarathustra transferring to him, no ego or I could have come to birth. He had the three holy members of his being as they were before the fall from paradise, physical body, ether body, and astral body, and was only endowed with his I through Zarathustra. These all melded together in a wonderful way. These facts are recounted in the Bible and they are a mirror of what can be found in the Akashic Chronicle. I have only been able to give you sketchy outlines of the confluence of these three mighty spiritual streams, that of Buddha, that of Zarathustra, and the ancient Hebrew stream in the Near East, where at the beginning of our calculated era these three streams were reborn in Christianity. These few lines we can continue another time. The end of Lecture 7